in today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations. Bas Rutan. Fighting is not a it's not a sprint, it's a journey, I would say. You gotta relax with it, you gotta find the openings of the opponent. The Facebook ah! You know, it was like I wanted to kill the guy because I knocked him out right away with a high kick. And it looked really cool because it was on his eye, so he needed a whole bunch of stitches. One of the greatest fighters in history. I mean, they put a baby in my hand. I remember standing with the baby. I felt like the president. You know, like, hey, pictures. It was so surreal. And the oh. next day, people bowing to me on the street. He overcame a childhood of illness and bullying. Every day, I would have asthma, but at six, every six weeks or so, I would have an asthma attack, which would be a week or eight days in bed, not able to do anything, not even eat, because I couldn't breathe. On top of it, I got this really bad skin disease. When I would make a fist, it would sometimes burst. You know, so I was always a loner. I played a lot by myself. I was really good in avoiding the bullish. By go- I, I went literally from treetop to treetop. And beat a dangerous addiction. I remember waking up one day and there were seven bottles of wine and I asked my wife how many she drank. And she said none. And it started with two little pain pills. So two pills become four, become eight, become 16. I realized I'm addicted. I'm shaking, you know, I get goosebumps, sweating, cold sweats. And I had an, an OxyContin addiction. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire, learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. This is Rob Conner from Switzerland. And if you are into martial arts or mixed martial arts, then you will know that this guy is a living legend. He's a three times king of pancreas. He's a former UFC heavyweight champion. Um, he's one of, one of the very few members of the UFC Hall of Fame. He has shaped the early days of the sports like uh, no one else. Um, he finished his professional fighting career with a streak of 22 um, undefeated fights. He is now an actor, a TV host. Um, he is a really great guy, great personality. He's an entrepreneur with a lot of training products, um, a lot of uh, instructional videos, but also um, yeah, physical performance improvement products, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later on. Very interesting. And yeah, I'm really happy to have him today, Bas Rutten. Thank you for making the time. And thank you very much for that introduction. You know, if you go over the life really fast, you realize a lot of stuff. (laughs) How did you find the time to do all that? (laughs) What I find most most amazing is you didn't you didn't age one day in the past twenty five years. It seems. I mean, if you watch all the well, you know, I I do feel it though. I do. Everybody's (laughs) saying that, but it's it's just about the lighting and keep it straight in your face once it comes from the from the top. Oh yeah. You know, so uh, all my buddies, they have the same, all my age. I look at them, I go, you, you're in pain when you wake up in the morning, right? And they go, oh yeah, I'm in pain. I say, and when you work out, the muscle aches, they stay? And they go, yeah, they stay. Okay, okay, good. That's not only me then, but apparently it's to everybody who, who gets up there in age. So. Oh, that's great. But, but did you feel as, as healthy and um, good as you did many years ago? You know, I actually feel really good. Yeah, I had a whole bunch of neck, neck work done, like neck surgeries, four neck surgeries. I have oh, a feet, yeah. arm, you know, all that stuff. But for the rest, I have to say, I, I, I feel good. You know, I'm still enjoying life. I wake up early in the morning. I'm having a, just a great time. So, yeah, I'm not slowing down with that. It's just body uh, aches 
that, uh, you know, you have to just get up. You have to stretch. Every morning I stretch okay. for like 20 minutes, you know. So I'm very limber. I can still fall in splits and I can go over. But, you know, it really helps with my knees. I have really bad knees. Not really bad knees. I have no cartilage on my kneecaps, which I thought was which a really solution. But it's the worst the worst problem you can have in a knee because it's the only thing they cannot change. All the other cartilage they can replace, the wow. kneecap they Here's the thing for right now, but uh, a buddy of mine did it, and I'm I'm going to wait a year till he has it. <laughs> <laughs> and if he feels good after a year, I might do it as well. Okay, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah. So um, maybe for the people who are not into MMA and martial arts, can you explain a bit what it is that uh, you made in your active career and what mixed martial arts are and what they can uh, imagine this. I guess most people nowadays they will know it, but uh, 10 years ago, most people you know, it was new. Um, very few people knew about it. And I know when I started watching the first videos, like back in uh, 2000, or in the early 2000s, I guess, yeah. what, what, what the hell are you looking at? This is, this is crazy. So, so um, you know, it's, uh, when it started, they called it free fighting, where I came yeah. from, from Holland. I'm from Holland, yeah. originally from the Netherlands. Uh, well, it's a mixture. And I like to always say to people who don't know what it is, I'll do it very, and, and big John McCarthy is a famous referee. He, he actually was the first guy who said that. It's a mixture of four Olympic sports. You take the punches from boxing, you take the kicks from taekwondo, you take the wrestling from wrestling, and then you take the submission game from judo. Yep. They put all those Olympic sports together, and boom, there you have mixed martial arts. It's all pretty much with the same rules. There's a lot you cannot do. A lot of people think, oh my God, it's in a cage. You can do everything, of course, that, that you know, you put, prisoners in a cage or you put animals in a cage so you know we had to get rid of that stigma in the beginning it was looked upon very heavy but i have to say early on uh, like the ultimate fighting championships it was there were no rules they literally say and the rules are there are no rules yeah. <laughs> i think it was no no eye gouging and there were two, two things no eye gouging something else in the beginning probably biting or yeah oh, biting, yeah biting yeah i think those two things exactly yes i've seen somebody get hit in, in the pills like 26 times in a row like i mean that was legal yeah. uh, i remember all the way back that they asked me they said would you want to do that i said there's no referee because the first two you've seen the referee first two you've seen the referee was not um, allowed to, to step in to stop the fight. It could only happen by the guy either tapping or verbally quitting, and otherwise it was um, the corner throwing a towel. But then yeah. they realized that one guy got beat up really, really bad, and the corner didn't throw a towel, and the referee looked at the corner, and they turned away his back to the referee, and he goes, what's going on? Later on, you asked him, and they said, yeah, if we, if we would have thrown the towel, the fighter would have beat us up. That's what he said before we got in. <laughs> So yeah, it was hard to get rid of the stigma in the beginning, yeah. but unfortunately for us, there came rules and everything started, and uh, and it became a mainstream sport now. Right now, I mean, the UFC sold for four point two billion dollars. That's that's more than any soccer club out there. It's huge. It's huge. Now. Yeah, yeah. So, w would you rather be yourself now um, or yourself like from twenty five years ago in today's times? You know, no, no. You know, I'm. Uh, We're here for a reason. God put us here for, for a reason. I did my path. And the, and the cool thing about me is you already touched on it in the opening. I'm in the, the UFC Hall of Fame in the pioneer section. Mm -hmm. So that means the guys who started it. And that section will only go grow as much, you know, because there's like maybe 100 people who started this thing or less. So all the other ones, a thousand years from now, yeah, you became UFC champion, you come in the Hall of Fame. Well, we were the guys who started it. And I'm very proud of that. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely happy with my life. Don't need to be young again. Would, would be great, but then I want my whole family to be young again as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I was surprised to hear about your story because you didn't have um, 
kind of an introduction to sports as you would expect. You, you were not uh, kind of always that sporty and aggressive guy who were getting, getting into fights. You have quite a different story how, you got, um, how the whole thing got started for you. Yeah, you, you mean my diseases that I had as Correct. a kid? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just born as a very sick kid. You know, I, I was completely covered in eczema when I popped out. Uh, that went away after four months. And then at four years old, I got a, a contracted rheumatic fever. Spent in the, like three, four months in the hospital for that. At six years old, we moved from the big city to a village uh, to live closer to my dad's job. And as soon as we arrived in the, the village, I started getting asthma and, and bad asthma. Mm -hmm. Every day I would have asthma, but at six, every six weeks or so, I would have an asthma attack, which would be a week or eight days in bed, not able to do anything, not even eat because I couldn't breathe. Uh, not only that, on top of it, I got this really bad skin disease, uh, eczema. And it was very bad on my hands, on my arms, in my neck, you know, behind my knees. And I had spots on my body. But my hands and arms, they were really bad. It was literally when I would make a fist, it would sometimes burst and, like, gross stuff would come out. So it was, uh, it was really disgusting. And needless to say, you know, when you're a kid, other kids, they don't understand that. You call you a leper. You're, you're, you know, they think it's contagious. And you can't blame kids because that's kids. But, you know, when you're the other kid, <laughs> it's, it's not a fun thing. You know, so I was always a loner. I played a lot by myself. Um, Spider-Man, Wolverine. I was reading a lot of comics at the time. And I was, I was really good in avoiding the bullies. By go I, I went literally from treetop to treetop. We had a big forest on the back of our home. And I found out that I could climb in a tree and I could start swinging the tree to the next tree. And there were only like four spots in the entire forest where I had to literally go down because that would be, the gap would be too, too big. But that was my, I, that's the only thing I did. Every single day, I climbed all the highest buildings in my in my uh, town because I always was this. I was always attracted, still am a little bit to to heights. Somehow, I'm afraid of it, but because I'm that, I want to go up there. You know, so uh, churches, everything. You know, I had to go to the top. I always wanted to climb the top. And you know, like I said, with bullies, if they came after me, which happened a lot, you know, and uh, I would simply climb a tree. And I would wait till they started climbing a tree and almost were there. And I would start swinging, go to the next tree. And they, of course, didn't want to do it. There was one bully who did it one time and the tree broke oh, and he okay. fell. Yeah, he almost died. I mean, his head was this far away from this big rock. And everybody heard about the story. So from that moment on, I was safe in the trees. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a good thing. But, you know, needless to say, from all the bullying, you know, you start uh, eventually you get fed up with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I saw a Bruce Lee movie in 1976, I believe it was. Um, I was 12 years old, together with my brother. Um, we, we watched the Bruce Lee. We, we sneaked into a, in a movie theater. It was in France. We were on a holiday there on a vacation. And uh, it was 17 years older. We sneaked in. We saw the movie, and I realized if I become like Bruce Lee, then the bullying would, be, would stop. So um, I asked my parents, took two years of begging and... and Asking because they thought it was martial arts, you know, they thought it was violence. They're very conservative, my parents. Uh, but after two years, they finally allowed me. And then it went, everything went really fast. I had this guy, this cool guy, my neighbor girl was a very pretty girl, and she had the coolest guy in town, Xavier, Xavier, you would call him here, but uh, X started, but in all of this, Xavier. And um, he took me under the swing, and I was uh, training at the adult classes with uh, the adults, Taekwondo. 
And from that moment, it just went really fast. Like in, in months, I was beating the adults. And wow. people started talking about me in the dressing room. I overheard them talk, speaking of me. Like, man, this kid is good. Man, he just dropped Jack again. Oh, people are laughing. Man, he's, he's a really, he can really fight. And once you hear it as a kid, you know, you get confirmation. And then I got in a, in a, in a street fight with the biggest bully in the school. Shucky was his name. Yeah. <laughs> you still remember his name? I still remember his name. Yeah, Shucky Van Eric was his name. Uh, yeah, not, not the really great family. His brother was in jail for something, for robbery or something. It was a, but, it, but he was always going after the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was riding my bicycle on the street. And um, he came with a group, like six guys, on his bicycle as well. Uh, they started shouting words, hey, leper, watch out, your ears don't fall off. Something like that. It was always something along those lines. And this time I shouted something back. And I heard them laugh and I looked back and I see them turning. They started to chase me. So I, I told myself, there's no need for chase now. So I put my bike on the stand and I was just waiting for them. And uh, they surrounded me. And I always talk about this. It's so funny because when you have a badass movie, you know, at the middle of the night, you have a fight scene that goes to the death. You have cars around these guys and the headlights of the cars are the lighting for the fight. <laughs> yeah. And they fight to the death and people are betting like these rich people. It yeah. wasn't like that. Only this was during the day and it was with bicycles. You know? so, <laughs> <laughs> but if you think back, anyway, he came to me and he started pushing my chest and uh, challenging me. And if I wanted to hit him, come on, Ruther, hit me if you want. Come on, leper. So I did. <laughs> and, uh, and and it, that was it. it. It was one punch. I, w- I was amazed. I knocked him out, out cold. His nose was flat on his face. He broke that nose. That was not so good later on. His friends didn't do anything. So I realized immediately those were not his real friends. You know, if you can beat him, join them. I think they were just afraid of him as well. And uh, But because of the nose, he had to go to the hospital. He had to set it. And because of that, the police was, of course, okay. cold. And now the police showed up at my mom and dad's doorstep. And I have to say, my, my mom and dad, I never told them that I uh, had so much trouble in school. You know, my mom had a lot of work with me. Like every night, we, she would mummify me. Like the whole family would send in old bed sheets, which they would rip up in bandages. And I had to put all the cortisone creams on. She yeah. would pick me up. And then at night, I would scratch it off because of her, she had to do it again. So I was a lot of, you know, I was a lot at home, a lot sick. My mom had to help me a lot. So I never told them about the bullying because... I didn't want them to worry anymore. So they took me off. They took me off Taekwondo. But then when I was 20, I started uh, immediately again back to Taekwondo and karate. I started doing everything at the same time when I left the house, my mom and dad's house. Uh, I started Thai boxing a year later right away because I wanted to, to fight full contact. I started competing in Thai boxing all six weeks later after I signed up. And then I started just knocking a lot of people out. They went really good. Um... It was very hard to get opponents. I stopped. I became a bouncer. Mm-hmm. Not a smart idea. Had a few more fights. Lost a fight, which really made me decide never to fight in Holland again. Because by then, I had a really great record. I, had all, I won everything by knockout, and I lost a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly, I was the worst Thai boxer in Holland. So I didn't want to do anything for them anymore. I started doing martial arts shows. Like yeah. on music, we used to do these martial arts shows, these choreographed fights and break tests and flying kicks and all that crazy stuff. We come up with backflips and somersaults. And, and on one of those shows, there was a guy, Chris Dolman. And Chris Dolman was a guy who was fighting, competing in Japan, but he had his students. He was an older guy, but he was still competing. But he had his students fighting in Japan as well. And he stopped me and he said, dude, I, I remember you from Thai boxing. You were such a great Thai boxer. Now I see you doing all these backflips and somersaults and and." the athletic abilities did you ever think about free fighting 
And that was pretty much it. You know, I went to a class one time that completely destroyed by everybody was very, uh, good for my humility. I mean, trust me because I thought I was a bad, badass, but I apparently I wasn't on the ground. I was, I got choked on bar. I mean, they destroyed me. Um, I came home, my wife laughing. I had to drink liquid food for three days because my throat was so messed up from all the chokes that I got. And I thought I could hold them. But anyway, you know, um, I, I had injuries. I didn't go a lot. Suddenly there was a phone call and that started it all. And it was him. And he said, boss, you have to come to Amsterdam right now. Jump in your car. Mm-hmm. There's this new organization called Pancras and they're looking for fighters. We got two scouts here and they're looking for fighters. Come over there. So I, I went over there. I got into a brawl with one of his fighters because he was fighting in Japan as well for a different organization and he wanted to show off, I guess. So he started to go really hard against me because they were filming. And I told him, I said, no, we don't have to do that. You know, they're looking at technique. They're not looking to knock each other out. So let's tone it down. And I think he thought that I was afraid. So he turned it up. So I stopped him again and I said, it's okay if I buy me, but it's not going to be one-way traffic. You understand that, right? I'm going to do it back. And now, of course, it was on. But for a very short amount of time because I knocked him out right away with a high kick. And it looked really cool because it was on his eye. So he needed a whole bunch of stitches. Oh, great. To the hospital. Great recovery. So what can you expect? The, the, the scouts, I saw them pointing at me, you know? <laughs> and, uh, we want him. So it got me in Japan two and a half months later, September 21st, 1993. It was crazy. Such a long time, 25 years ago now, my very first fight in Japan. And, you know, I know it's a long story, but that's everything, how it worked. And whoop, and that's where I started fighting. Um, wow. Okay. That's very impressive. Very interesting. And then those, those times are really different. I mean, the, the, uh, the audience was different than today's audience, less educated, I guess. Um, no, not in Japan. In, in, that was the greatest thing in Japan. In Japan, they, in Japan, the audience understands that you're the professional. Mm. So they don't shout at you what you should do. You know, okay. It's like Tiger Woods when he's uh, playing golf. I'm going, to go, use the nine iron! Use the nine iron! <laughs> I would never do that, you see what I mean? Because I understand that he's much better than me. Well, I actually really suck, but he's, he's really good at that. Here in America or the rest of the world, except Japan, Everybody likes to tell you what you should do. Yet 90% of those guys don't fight even themselves or don't even train. So it's very funny how that works. But in Japan, it's complete silence. Mm-hmm. Now, that helped me a lot because in Thai boxing, I was super aggressive. Mm-hmm. I was literally, I came out very technical. I would get hit and then I would just knock him out. I, would, I could not stand it. somebody get me hit, that they would hit me. When I went to Japan the first day, I didn't know the rules yet. I knew what we could do, submissions, but there were some different rules set there. I didn't know how many rounds. I, d- I thought there were weight classes. So I found out there was no weigh-in. And normally the weigh-in happens the day before the fight. I figured, ah, you know, this, this, they're known for being honest, these Japanese people. So I guess it's on the day of the fight. I'll make sure that I'm, a, don't, I'm not more than 205 pounds because I thought that was my weight class. Didn't even know. Didn't even think about it. So the next day I see my opponent. He's like 6'4", the no. tallest Japanese guy I've ever seen. And I'm looking at him and I go, how, how, what is his weight? They said, 245. What are you? I said, 203. I get, but is that not too heavy? He says, no, 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 boss, there's no weight classes. We just fight everybody fights everybody. I go, oh, really? I go, yeah. <laughs> awesome. But of course I was bluffing because inside I'm thinking, now I'm fighting a guy 30, 42 pounds heavier. And then before he went, looked, uh, walked away, I asked him how many minutes were the rounds? How many rounds and how many minutes? He said, oh, it's just one round. And I was all happy again. And then he said, 30 minutes, like in half an hour. Right. That was the fight. No break. And you trained for how many, hour, uh, how many minutes? 
I trained for five rounds in three minutes, full, but full power, you know? So now I had to adjust my whole schedule because if I would unload in the opening of the fight, and the Japanese are known for being very tough. You just get out. out. Yeah, and I got 28 more minutes to go. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> so when I came up, everything was calm. I mean, you can literally put somebody in the 30th row mm -hmm. and he can speak like I'm talking to you right now and I can exactly what he says in the middle of the ring. It's wow. complete silence. When I knock somebody down, he goes, whoa, everybody gets up. And then 10 seconds later, it's complete stillness again. And I think that changed me as a fighter. I became this really calculated fighter. It was amazing. Like now, for, for my Thai boxing, every picture that I, you would have of me hitting somebody, my face would go, you know, it was like I wanted to kill the guy. But in Pancras, it was just, you know, there was no facial expressions anymore. Everything became relaxed. The blocking, whatever, they hit me. There was no... No more flinching, no more nothing. I was completely in the zone. And I, I truly believe that's because of the audience. It was so quiet and so relaxed. And they were actually rooting for you. Like when I knocked him out, my first opponent, uh, because it was a palm strike to the head since he was taller, so I could palm strike him under the jaw. Mm -hmm. And then later I kicked him and kneed him in the head. That's a long story. But anyway, <laughs> they started uh, cheering for me. It was the most amazing thing. I mean, if you do that in any other, other country... You know, just people might start booing, right? You just knock somebody out from their country, but they people were freaked out. I mean, they put a baby in my hand. I remember standing with the baby. I felt like the president, you know, like <laughs> it was so surreal. And the wow. next day, people bowing to me on the street, like one every out of eight people would bow to me. Wow. Okay. So then I saw the newspaper, and it was a big picture of me hanging in the air because I. Apparently, I jumped in the splits through every corner because I was so happy. It was 43 seconds. The rhythm jump. Yeah, and it became my trademark later on. I had to do it after every fight that I won. But that picture was in the air, on the, in the newspaper, and my opponent was laying below me on the ground, knocked out, and the people recognized me from that picture. But uh, it was crazy. It's an, uh, if, you, if you've never been to a different country like that far, never be on an airplane, and then you go from Holland for a 13-hour plane trip, all the way to Japan, it's a complete different world, you know, and then have that experience. Yeah, that was uh, really cool. You never forget those things. That was something. Oh, yeah. But your, your first few fights, you were not as successful as late in your career, right? You need to learn a lot of things. Yeah. So I knocked the first guy out, second guy I knocked out, and then they knew, okay, we're not going to stand with this guy. Now, my groundwork was not good at the time. I trained once a week, if that, in, in, in Amsterdam. Uh, And that was just a two-hour drive from where I used to live. And, you know, and sometimes the guys didn't show up. So it was hard for me to find training partners. So my third one I lost. It was a toehold. Now, don't let the word toehold uh, make it think that I saw somebody break a shin bone with a toehold. So it's a very powerful lock that they put on the ankle. And it's either your ankle is going to give your knee or if the shin bone is weaker, it's a twisting motion, then the shin bone might break. And that's what happened with that person. My, my ankle just blew up. I didn't know what it was. I knew it hurt a lot <laughs> because I tapped on it. And then my fourth fight, I believe I won again and I won another fight and boom, again, by submission, I would lose, hmm. you know, and that went on. And suddenly I lost the third time by submission. Hmm. Um, and that got me very angry because I'm one of these guys who never wants to go to a third mistake. Yeah. Two is okay. Third, that's unacceptable. Uh, I became very vocal. I started asking everybody, every gym where I went, is there somebody who wants to train with me? And I found this one guy, Leon Van Dyke is his name. And he, 
He started to train with me. He was a young guy, very good Thai boxer, athlete, super strong. And we just started watching videotapes and fights and would break down everything. And then I got obsessed with ground fighting. I would literally two, three times a day, we did only ground fighting. Striking, sparring, we didn't even do anymore. We just did the tie pads, like when you hit like focus mitts for kicking. That was for stamina. We did that four times a week for stamina and the rest only submissions. And I never lost a fight again. I won my next eight fights by submission. So I always tell people, ah, I'm not good there. I don't want to learn. I said, dude, if I can do it, you can do it. I'm nobody special, you know? Yeah, I learn fast, but guess what? The, pe- the guys who have to work, work harder for it, they're going to be harder to beat because they had to work harder for it, so they w- don't want to give it away. You see what I mean? There's always a plus and a minus. So, uh, but it helps, you know? Like I said, never lost the fight in again, uh, a- anymore. Just putting in the work, that's it. Yeah. And what I liked about you, um, you've always been a very technical fighter. So you, you always had a good understanding for what's behind the actual movement. So a lot of guys probably are just, you no, know, they're, they're practicing a movement, but without understanding it. And you always seem to understand exactly what's going on and how to, uh, how to use gaps in their knowledge against them uh, and what they were doing. You know, I've been messing with people my entire life. You know, when I was a kid, I was the class clown. You know, I couldn't get attention uh, positive. I'm going to get a negative, you know. Well, negative, it was positive for me, but for the poor teachers. I mean, I, I, I was kicked off every school almost, you know, my poor mother. But I was always messing with people. And I thought, you know, because if you mess with, if you disturb their equilibrium, if you, if you start talking and you cause a little bit of stir up in the brain, that can really affect their fighting. And I would do that right away from the beginning. You know, I would think about what I was doing. I would say certain, I would speak English to my Dutch corner. Uh-huh. They never got it. All the fighters, they go like, why, why do you think I would speak English? Because I want you to understand what I'm saying. You know, if I look at my corner and I'm going to talk about where are we going to party tonight? You know, last time we went to the Motown place. I didn't really like it, right? Did you like it? No. No, let's go to gas penning tonight, okay? Okay, one second. I, I, I'm busy here. And then I would continue to fight again. And these guys, I know they're thinking like, what, what, what is this guy doing? Is he busy with going out or does he want to fight? But you see, I start making him think. I start getting inside their heads. And that's what I did with the stand-up game as well. You know, I do a certain thing. I realize, um, I always say it like this to my students. Students, I give you a pattern. Mm-hmm. And once you get my pattern, then I break the pattern. Yeah. So I give you, I, I move down. Every time when I point you to the stomach, let's say with a straight to the, with the left, straight to the body, I can do it just like this, but that doesn't have the desired effect. If I would every time lower myself and mm-hmm. I do this over a course of like five minutes, every time when I point to the body, I completely do this. Soon enough, I don't even have to punch anymore. I only do this and he's already thinking it's a body shot. Yeah. You see, I painted that picture in his head like this is a body shot. And if you do it a few times, suddenly you just dip and then you come suddenly with the right on top. You see, and I started really enjoying those kind of things, tricking your opponent out. And thankfully, the place in Japan was the best place to do it because everybody was perfectly quiet. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, for someone who's never been in a, in a ring or in a cage, um, what's that feeling like to enter a ring and knowing now, now it's going to get, uh, it's going to hit the fan? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, this is my first fight. I remember, I don't remember a thing for my first fight. I, I know that I, I lost uh, or won, but I don't, I don't know. I, I was a back kick, but I always told the people, if they would have blindfolded me and they would have called in three other tie boxers and they put them all next to each other, I couldn't have said I was fighting him. 
Oh, it's really? like you don't fight a person, you fight an identity, a silhouette. It's really weird. There's chaos in your head because okay. you never control it. My buddy Amir said it the best. Um, he said, imagine you have a plank and the plank is one foot wide. It's like two inches thick and it's six feet, uh, 20 feet tall, right? Long. Mm-hmm. And you put it here on the grass and you have to walk over it. That's a very simple thing, right? Everybody can do that. You put the same plank in between two buildings, 10 stories up. Now do it again. That is fighting. Because fighting is, in the training, you make a mistake. Well, you you will feel it, but you're probably not going to get knocked out. In fighting, you make a mistake, you're going to get knocked out. There's no room for mistakes. Or if you leave an arm out, you get arm barred. If you let go, you get choked. You get a leg leg lock. You know, I mean, there's so many ways to win and so many ways to lose in mixed martial arts. So you have to control everything. And once you can control it, then you fight at the best. There's a lot of guys who are really good in the, in the dojo, in training, yeah. but they can never perform it under pressure. There's guys out there who are in the gym who will beat the world champions in training, will completely destroy them. And then you think, oh my God, we have another world champion coming. And somehow they cannot, yeah, yeah. They cannot overcome the fear and they lock up. They don't want to throw anything. They start overthinking things. If After- I do this, open here. Maybe it's going to kick me here. You see, you start, once you start doing the what ifs, Oh, you're going down. <laughs> you should never think, what if this happens? Yeah. And, and that's it, you know? So, and I, I believe it's in every other sport. You know, if you look at uh, basketball, you know, the last one, if you, dunk, if you win this one, the whole team wins. If, if you sink this shot. But if you don't, you're going to lose. That's a lot of pressure on that person for the last possible moment. I figured he's going to the same thing as the fighters go to. But you did it so many times, you know, if you're unfaced, you'll still land that shot. And, and that's with fighting. As long as you can control it, you're going to be fine. But did you ever feel fear of an opponent or did you ever feel fear of a, of a fight or is it fear of getting hurt, fear of um, whatever? The, yeah, the, fir- the first fights, you, you're, you know there's these moments that you think, what am I doing here? Why, why did I sign up for this? Especially when they told me 30-minute fights and with a 43-pound heavier guy. You know, I was like, yay, you know, acting. But inside I go, dude, what am I doing here? This is the craziest thing. But um, I don't know. It's, it's like I said with the heights in the beginning. Remember I said I'm kind of afraid of heights, but that's why I want to conquer it? Maybe that's it. You know, if I'm afraid of something, I'm doing it immediately. Okay. Because I cannot stand it to be afraid of something. So then I try to overcome it by simply doing it. And, you know, once you do it, it's like the first time you get into a car. I thought, and especially in Europe, you have to drive with a stick shift, right? Yeah. Here you can get your test done with an automatic. Or with a stick shift in the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, what's going on? You have no clue what you're doing. And look at us now. I mean, people eating their breakfast. They stir their coffee. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cigarettes and Yeah. You do everything. It becomes normal. And see that as fighting as well. You know, it becomes normal. Once it becomes normal, yeah. Sometimes you might still think, oh, little nervous or you got a strong opponent. But I was always really good in, in talking to myself. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. If you talk to yourself and you really go over the dangers that are there in fighting, mm-hmm. there are no dangers. If I get knocked out, there's a referee who's going to pull them off. If I get in an arm bar, for instance, yeah, I can let him snap my arm or I can be smart. I tap. And I can fight the next month or two months later again. If I get, you know, knocked out at days and the fight stops the fight, okay. Is that really so bad? No, it is not that bad. But what is bad is that the, the backlash of negative negativity that from people comes. Mm-hmm. I always tell my students and every fighter, I say, I fight for me. 
I don't fight for my family. I don't fight for anybody else but me. And it sounds very egomaniac. And, and, and it has to be as well. Because I realized that if I put the pressure on myself to fight for, for my family and we need the money and we need this, there's more pressure on your shoulders, you fight the worst. If I don't care about anything, I just fight for me, then I fight the best. My, my students, if they're nervous, I say, imagine this. Imagine your opponent, like tomorrow is the fight. And uh, I said, imagine your opponent walks into the gym right now. We put you guys both in that room. We lock the door. There's no windows in the room. You guys fight. Winning or losing, you're not allowed to say who won and who lost. You open the door. Do you care if you would have lost that fight? And they all say, no, I wouldn't care. I say, see, because you're fighting for yourself. But why do you care is because your friends and family members are there and you don't want to lose in front of them. And if you can, if you can put that to the side, oh, man, it frees up everything in your head. You know, there's a referee. My opponent is going to be right in front of me. As long as I don't do this... There's nothing he can do. And I, do, I will never do this. As long as I keep it right in front of me, I train for this two times a day. You know, surprises, yeah, it might happen. But, I mean, it's got to be very hard to surprise. It's very hard to surprise any fighter because that's what we do all day long. Uh, so it's, it's not that dangerous, but they make it dangerous in their head. That's what I think. I see, I see. Um, you mentioned that your parents were uh, very against you starting your fighting career. Did they, did they live to see, your, uh, see you at your peak? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're still alive. And... Um, And they're very proud. Right now, they're very proud. In the beginning, you know, listen, if you go into a cage in the UFC, <laughs> they were actually in America watching my first UFC fight and, uh, in my apartment yeah. uh, with a whole bunch of group of uh, people from my gym while I was fighting. I believe it was in New Orleans that I had my first fight there. So they came, they, they came to support it uh, eventually. But my mother, you know, when I started Thai boxing, uh, I would call her after the fight and I would say, yeah, I knocked him out again. And she would always... How is he? Is he okay? And I say, Mom, I just want, can you can't say uh, congratulations and then, then ask that question. You know, she was always worried about the other people. But, uh, you know, once she realized and, and, and uh, reporters came and they started filming and a documentary came out and then they started filming uh, what you have to do for it. You can't eat this, you can't go out, you can't drink, you, can't, you know, all these things. And it, it's a sport. And once they saw that, like, whoa, wait a minute. They didn't expect that. I think for the outside world, it's like two animals in a cage. They just drink beer, they do whatever they want, and they just fight, you know? People don't realize that you train a lot, two times a day. Everything needs to be in order in order to fight good, to fight well. So once they realized that, they were good. Okay, that's good. Okay. Um, you've trained with a lot of you know, the, best, the best people in the industry. I mean, you've trained so many um, of the top fighters and still train many of the top fighters, I assume. Um, do, you have, do you have a feeling for who will win, who won't win, or who has it, or who, who has not, hasn't got a minute in him? You know, it's a very hard thing to... Uh... Yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard because... Sometimes I'm completely right, and sometimes I'm completely wrong. Most of the time, when a, a calm person walks in, and he re, uh, like a student, a new student, and they pick up and they listen to the questions or uh, to, to the directions, and they do it immediately, and they stay calm. And once they start getting hit, you know, they they look at the they keep looking, but they're not like freaking out. You immediately see, okay, they, this can go really far. You know, they're calm. You know, it's all about staying calm and not aggressive. The guys who come in and I want to do this, I do that, I do that blah, 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 you know, who talk like that, most of the times they're not going to make it because their mind is racing way too, man, too much 
You have to calm it down, calm it down. Fighting is not a, it's not a sprint. It's a journey. I always say you got to relax with it. You got to find the openings of the opponent and, and speed is not going to do that. Yeah. You might get lucky a few times. You have guys like that, uh, 17 wins and seven losses and then 17 wins all by knockout or submission. But then you look at the losses all by knockout or submission as well. You know, those guys are great for the, for the audience and great for the promoters because they always come to fight, but it's, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. I never wanted to play that thing. You know, if you if you can outlast a fighter like that for like a couple of minutes, you're going to destroy a fighter like that. Because the reason they win in the first round is because they're super explosive. But they never went to a second round, almost never. Yeah. You know, so for them, suddenly you don't go to a second round. And now, now you come in the world that I was in, 30-minute fights. It's going to be hard to beat that, you know. So it's all about staying calm. So if you see a fighter, sometimes the, the explosive fighter, the crazy fighter, we can calm him down and he becomes really good, which I didn't expect. And then sometimes a calm fighter comes in where I think he's going to go really fast up and then he's stuck somewhere. But most of the time I have to say, I'm, I'm right. I can see when they walk in in the first class, I can tell, okay, he, he can be very good or she can be very good. doesn't matter. Yeah. How has um, fighting helped you in your life outside of fighting your mentality your approach to things to the way you approach fear the way you approach challenges um how has this helped you or how has this shaped you maybe it's a better question with everything you know what, what prepared my life was my my asthma and my eczema that's where i developed the thick skin that's where i developed oh i i was one floor up so if i had to go to the restroom while i had an asthma attack i can take three steps after rest Three steps have to take a rest. Three steps. And that's going to the restroom, just going to the restroom. It's a struggle to go to the restroom. People have no clue when they have asthma. 24 7, seven, eight days straight. I mean, there's no air. You know, if you take a few steps, you got you to calm down for the few steps that you took. You know, so I think that really made me strong because I still had to do it anyway. I had to go through that, go down the stairs. Down the stairs, pretty easy. Take two steps, sit down. Take two, now going back up. Try to do that if with asthma attack. It's insane. So, you know, that. And then what was the other point you mentioned? How, how to shape you for life or how, how your experiences shaped you for life, how your approach to things shaped you for life. Yeah, but you see, that, 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 that prepared me for fighting to push through when I really need to push through. And then when, and, and I brought that concept, I brought to fighting. You know, I always thought I wasn't not good enough. I always thought the other guy is doing more. If I were completely dead in training, I would think he's doing three more rounds right now. And then mm -hmm. I get up and I do three more rounds. I'm very good at saying what I'm good at doing what I'm telling myself. Yeah. If I say today I'm going to do 10 rounds, I'm going to do 10 rounds. If at ninth round I fall on the ground, I will do the 10 rounds. If at the third round I fall on the ground, I will finish the 10 rounds. Because yeah. I am programmed like that. I always did that. Always pushing, always doing what you say you're going to do. And if I don't, I can't look at myself in the mirror. I'm very weird with that. Okay. So it's just, you know, putting out what you're going to do. Just say it before. Never decide on the, the day of the training. You know, okay. now, if I get closer to a fight and I start getting weak and I feel a little weak, of course, I listen to my body. I'm going to go, you know, there's a reason today. Maybe I should stop right now. You know, but if I still feel good, normally I would just blast through. Yeah. So but you do have to listen to your body, but you know when that is, you know, when you're mentally weak, that's a different thing when you're physically weak. When you're physically weak, you know, maybe I went too hard last week. Maybe I got to slow it down a little bit. Let's focus a little bit more on the mental at, uh, aspects 
of martial arts. And then I start training with that. And I just apply that to everything I did. Preparation is the key to everything. It's very simple. The more you prepare, the better it is. People go, oh, but you're acting. Oh, you're looking good, man. I'm a god. Great reviews. You know, man, you have really a talent for that. I, I no. <laughs> I, I work really hard on it. You know, like a script, I get it in within three days. I try to memorize the whole freaking thing, you know, and then I start rehearsing. And then, and then you start different ways because sometimes you do it a certain way, mm-hmm. but they wanted a different way. So actually, I took care of that also. So try to come up with a few different ways that you do it and just doing it, doing it. Then you still have to make it look natural. I mean, there's so much thought that comes with acting and that's just acting. And then you do commercials and then you do this and then fight games. Well, whatever I did is the same concept. Preparation is the key to success. That's what I tell everybody. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the subject of uh, bullying. Um, you being bullied in your childhood. Um, I recently had a very interesting discussion with a guy. Um, maybe you've heard of him. His um, name is Aaron Stark. Very interesting story. So he was um, bullied as a, as a child. Um, he comes from a very abusive house, household, so mentally, physically abused, uh, was very overweight, um, always the guy who smelled bad at school, um, was bullied, you know, his parents were drug addicts. And basically his story, to make a long story short, is um, he, when he was around 16 years old, he bought a gun and wants to go to the school and start, no, just go wild and, and, and cause as much harm as possible. And yeah. he was saved last second by someone who basically just showed him some kindness and who you know, just like, you know, hugged him and said, look, hey, you look like shit. Let's, let's you know, go grab some food, grab a pizza. And that kind of changed him. And now he's an advocate against, uh, you know, bullying, bullying. And he's talking about how we can save people who really have um, lost all of their hope. By the way, he's a big fan. I, I, um, I had to promise that I, you know, get you guys in touch. So <laughs> watch oh, this. Okay. Really great. It's it's um he's a very inspiring character and he's very um it was a very emotional discussion I have to say with him. It's very, very, you know, going going that into the mind of someone who was that close to running wild and understanding the reason was a crazy experience. It's you know, it's it's always it needs just one little positive thing. It's funny how God puts people into place at the right moment that you know, because otherwise it could have gone really bad. I remember a moment like that where it, it just landed. Um uh the guys trying to pick a fight with me and I saw in a movie and since I was always in the in the trees I grabbed a branch and this guy was there and I grabbed it and I want to swing towards him and kick him like I saw in the movies and the branch broke and I fell on the ground and all the kids around me started laughing and that was already when I got bullied over and over again and I remember going running home I grabbed the kitchen knife a big knife and I started running back to the street and thankfully my mother was cleaning she sees me suddenly running with a knife in her hand and she starts sprinting after me and then she got me thankfully and she put it out now I don't know if I would have stabbed them but I would have threatened I was I was in a state that I I did not care anymore and I was 12 I was 12 years old you know so yeah it's and then just one person you know one show of love or what a little bit exactly of the other side because if you only get bullets you know you think everybody is like that But then when you see something positive happening to you, man, that's, that's power. You know, the power of love, right? They make songs about it. It's really yeah. like it. It's true. It's true. But what, what, what do you recommend to someone who is in that position or to maybe if you are parents of a boy or girl that's being bullied at school, what should you tell them to do or what, what, how should they react? I mean, you've been there. What's, is there one strategy to that fits all or is it? You know what? The, my, my strategy was, You know, but, but, but you can't say that nowadays, right? That, well, I, I learned how to fight. Mm-hmm. I just fought myself out. And I got, once I dropped the first guy, 
ninety uh, percent of the building stops. That was it for me. Now I would say, yeah, love and peace. You try no if it's if it's a kid. No, it's only four years of your life probably. All those bullies, ninety percent of them, they're not the smartest guys. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're not born into money, the life is not going to be a very fun move. I had a an, um, a reunion. But I walked in with my wife, and I was a world champion, and I walked in Holland into the reunion, and boy, it was exactly like they do in the comedies. You know, all the tough guys were complete losers right now, and it's really like that. You know, it's not a movie thing. It's really like that. And I remember going up, and I look in the microphone, I say, does anybody want to mess with me right now? And I started laughing. I go, man, this is so funny. It's like in the movies. You guys are the opposite right now. You're the loser. <laughs> You know, it was so fun to rub it in because these things, you know, did I have to rub it in? No, of course not. But then you can see how when people say things to you, how long that stays with you. Yeah, yeah. I have a teacher, Maester Jos. Still if I was him now, and he's only even a few years older than me, he could be maybe nine years older than me. I would still slap him. I wouldn't knock him out, but he would get a slap in his face, I think. I truly believe so. He was such a bad person. And the way he treated me, yeah, he, he should really watch out if I would see him. Like I said, I won't hurt him, but it's just a little tack smack in the face. I say, and you know you're lucky right now. And then just walk out. That will be it. You know, I wouldn't even try to knock him out because he doesn't deserve it right now. But you see what words can do. It stay with, they stay with you for such a long time. And I want those kids at home to know that they're just words, you know. Use them as fuel. Use them as fuel what I did. Find something that you love to do. This is important. Don't don't go for, what do they always say? Oh, it's my wish. No, it's my, uh, what do they say? Passion. People go, oh, it's my passion. I want to do this. Yeah, I want to be Jimi Hendrix. But, you know, that you know physically, there's no way I can do that. that, that that's not going to happen. Follow what you love to do. Because most of the time, what you love to do, you completely invest in that. You will do it over and over again because you love to do, like fighting. I love fighting. I love going to the gym. I love going over it. It was the only thing I was doing. And once you get obsessed like that and love it, you become good at everything. But find what you love. Don't find what your passion is. Yeah. Did, did you ever get to meet that Shucky guy again? Or whatever his name no. was? <laughs> no, I never got to. Yeah. I don't think, I did an, uh, a show in Holland called uh, Reunion. Uh, that, that's different what I just said. It's a, it's a TV show. It's a big, big TV show. Like in Holland, 3 million, million people would watch. Right. You have to understand there's 15 million people in, in Holland, like one five at that time. And then 3 million people, that's one in five. That's like the Super Bowl. That's how many people watch it. Yeah, and I remember walking into the classroom. They made a classroom. And, uh, and it was cool because other kids really, they did really great things as well. And they, they looked at all the kids, you know, and including me, of course, but also the other kids. Uh, and then when I walked in, they asked, is there anybody who should be afraid? And I go, no. I said, but, you know, I, I, I wish they were here because I wanted to thank them. Because of those guys, I'm having this great life right now. Because if they wouldn't have bullied me, I don't know, maybe I would have stayed a cook. I'm a professional chef. Maybe I would have opened the restaurant, you know. But because of the bullying, I became a fighter. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is that um, it seems like a lot of the fighters of the first generation, like guys like Mark Kerr or uh, Mark Coleman and so on, they kind of seem to struggle to get find a way into a normal life right now. From from if you look yeah. at what do you think that is? It's uh, look at the head. Guys, I mean those they have been through a lot of <laughs> things. So you say they're ready for everything. But you know what? They live in the moment. 
you know, and I understand everybody says live in the now. And I understand that. I like to live already in the future. When I came to America within three weeks, I was taking acting classes at the Beverly Hills Playhouse here in the Beverly Hills. You know, I knew eventually I was still fighting, but eventually I was going to do that. And I knew also that is a job. That's a profession. You have to learn that. I know also because I was a fighter and I thought I was really good. And then my first fight came and I realized I sucked because it's too much pressure. Well, that pressure, you will have an acting too. So you can be in front of the mirror and do all your lines and you think you're 100% good. But now three cameras in your face and the whole crew is waiting. And if you mess up, that's going to take longer. And people start, oh, like doing this kind of stuff, you know. That's a lot of pressure. And suddenly you don't forget, you forget your lines. How is that possible? I remembered everything. It was in my top of my head. Again, that is pressure. And for me, I want to overcome that by going to acting classes and immediately doing acting on stage with other actors there. You know, because once you do it again under pressure, you just have to get used to it. Now, I was also preparation, 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 as you said. That's it. Again, it's all preparation. But do what you need to do. So if it's in, in front of an audience, you have to compete in front of an audience, mm-hmm. try to rehearse in front of an audience. Because the difference between not an audience, not having anybody, and an audience, it's a big difference. That's, that's the plank again, what I was talking about. The yeah. one foot, 20 foot long. Yeah. What would you say to the kids that think they can become the next Mayweather or the next uh, um, McGregor or whatever? I mean, there are a lot of guys who think, hey, they have it in them and they are training just for that. But I know statistically only so many people can, can make it to the top. Um, should they put everything in one card? Should they have a plan B? What, what would you be? What would be your It's opinion? always a plan B. I always had a plan B. You know, like I said, I'm a chef cook. Uh, so, so, uh, 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 so, so if I would... I can do anything. Like I have people skills. I know I can talk to everybody. I can be a car salesman, make a lot of money. I can be behind the bar. I can I'm, I'm make a killing because I know I'm good with people. I, I enjoy people. I like people. And that's why I like to talk and where they come from. So uh, with, uh, with kids, I would say don't, don't start too early. This is most of the time, it's bad what I say now, but it's 80% is true. Like you have these young kids who are really talented. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they get pushed by their dad who used to do the same thing, but it was not really that good. And now they try to live out their dream through the kids and they put all the pressure on this kid. And then if he excels, he says, hey, it's just like me. It was just like me, you know, because then they can bring it back to them. It's for them. But you put way more, too much pressure on the kid. Let the kid be the kid. You know, oh, he's going to compete when he's 10 years old. No, don't. Why? That makes no sense. Yeah, but boxing is already, no, don't. Wait till he's 16, 17. And then just only, even if you're mixed martial arts, just a few, you You don't want to burn out. But the hard thing is when you do something over and over again, you start to get burned out. Yep. You know, it, you become sensitized to it. You, you, it becomes too normal. And fighting is not normal. There needs to be a little bit of fear or a little bit of that. Because if you completely relax and absolutely no fear, it's not good for your reflexes. Now, that's why you have those feelings to make your reflexes better, you know, to be alert. That's why you have that. If you don't have that alert anymore, like all these guys, they say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, you're an idiot. If something is wrong with you, if you're not afraid of anything, you're stupid. I put a polar bear in front of you. Trust me, I'm very afraid of a polar bear or any bear. For that matter, snakes, big pythons, I would never mess with, put them around my neck, make a picture. I would never do that. You know, that's asking for trouble. Once they wrap around, you're done. So take the pressure off the kid and just let him do 
what he wants to do. And to the kid, if he wants to compete, don't start with competing. You know, the great thing in mixed martial arts is, for instance, if they pick mixed martial arts, you can then do judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments or just wrestling. You can separate it. And then once he's 18, let him a few boxing matches, amateur boxing, you know, slowly but surely. Uh, you get the strongest. I was the strongest from 30 till 33, 34. Mm-hmm. I was insanely strong. Like I would do nine one on pull ups, wow. you know. I mean, I was just a very iron cross. I could do all that stuff, you know. And 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 I never did heavy weights. All well, eighty kilograms did thirty times like bench pressing four sets of thirty. Like I would do this okay weight, but I would just do a lot of times, a lot of reps, slowly but surely push yourself. And then once you you feel yourself that you want to compete, and in boxing everything is working, and sparring. Then start competing, but don't compete too much. Don't compete every month, you know, do it four times a year, slowly. But because if you start doing it at 18 years old, at 21, you're going to have like 50 fights. You don't want to do that. Wait for it because your strongest years are going to come. I'm telling you, once you're around 30 years old, that's why you're the smartest. And that's where everything really comes together. Pretty much Christ's age when he passed away, 33, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) You have uh, three daughters, right? Yes, and a grandson. A and grandson. Congratulations! Yeah. So, so what, what, what kind of what kind of dad is Bas Rutten? Uh, Bas Rutten? Uh, well, what you see is what you get with me. What you see right now this is exactly how I'm at home. You know, I might sometimes be a little laying, relaxed, but with the kids, it's always fun. It's always laughing. This morning already, we were laughing. I get up early uh, now because I want to get used to the East Coast time. And on Thursday, I go to the East Coast. So I get up here at 6 o'clock, a quarter to 6 a.m. And then I, I cook for my, my daughter who goes to school at 6 already. Mm-hmm. So I make her some healthy food because most of the time she doesn't eat. But I give her this special drink that I have with its all nutrition and, and there's like... Um, cashews in but i grind them and you know so she's got carbs and she's got everything that she needs in it and then i make an omelet or something for her as well and then i start my day all my, my routine the stretching routine i do everything that i do i pray a lot you know i, I like to go into the zone and, and calm down and uh, and then the day the day starts uh, i mean three hours later three hours later i put my my uh, my social media on so i, I watch very careful. But everything in the house, it's always laughing. My, my other daughter, my middle daughter, so to say, 21-year-old, she took the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu class yesterday. And I was kind of hoping that she would really love it. And she came back and she loves it. And, and Which is hard because the first time, you know, you have no clue what you're doing. You know, it's people can just do with you whatever they want. But, she, you know, she says, no, I want to go back. And today she's going to start training again. So, you know, yeah, there's a lot of laughing here. There's a lot of messing with people. We do that too, especially my youngest daughter. My poor wife, oh man, she would shock her the whole time, like wait outside the restroom. My wife comes out, and then she would film it, you know, to see her expression. And my wife, poor wife, she falls for it every single time. And like my daughters do it to me and they don't, there's no reaction. So they stop. And I tell my wife, I say, don't react that big because they keep on doing it, you know, but she can't, she can't help it. She has to do it. So yeah, she gets uh, bothered a lot, but it's all the fun and games. Okay, okay. And your son-in-law, if you have a uh, if you have a grandkid already, then your son-in-law must have been shit, shit scared of uh, you know you. <laughs> so. No, he loves it. My daughter was uh, my oldest daughter. She he lives in Holland with mm-hmm. my uh, with my oldest daughter. She's twenty eight. She lives over there, and um, and she was actually texting me yesterday, and she said. Uh, He's, uh, where's Opa Boss? That's what he, he was asking. Where's Opa Boss? Where's Opa Boss? So he says, hey, uh, Scott is asking. Scott is his name. Asking about you. I said, well, you're in luck. In a couple of weeks, we're coming to Holland. But we kept it quiet. But So we're going to come visit. So 
that was a that was a nice thing to say because they uh, last time he was the, <laughs> um, I went back to the airport and I was at the airport and I got a picture from my grandson. They have a big screen TV and they were playing the movie Here Comes the Boom, and where I was one of the the four leads. And uh, and there's a part where he walked over and he puts his hand against the TV on oh. me, and my, oh. my daughter made a picture of it. It's so cute, you know. Yeah. She said to me, "I go, oh, you know that." Uh, it's cool stuff. So, yeah, he's a natural heavyweight. I truly believe he's going to be heavyweight champ. My daughter already started. No, that he's going to be a lawyer. It's you know? too early. It's too early. Yeah. Yeah. I said, we'll decide that later. Don't worry about it. Oh, great, great, great. Um, has there ever been a time where you struggled in your life? I mean, you've, oh, been yeah. um, you've reached the top in many areas. Well, listen, and, uh, everybody has their things, every single person on the planet. You know, for me, it was also once work starts slowing down. Once you as a fighter, you stop. It's an incredible high when you win. You know, if you knock somebody out, most of the time with me, it was a combination I worked on and to, to see that come to fruition, you know, that's like, whoa, that's really cool. On a certain submission, you win them. And it's like such a high that you have when you win. And once they take that away... And you don't have anything to replace that with. Like, for instance, Pat Militich, he's very smart about it. He's chasing tornadoes now. Right away when he stopped fighting, because he knew he was going to have that problem. Okay. Other guys, you know, they start, like, with me happened, drinking. You, okay. start to drink. you know, but I'm a very... I see things of myself pretty fast. And I go, oh, well, pretty fast. Took a few years. But, you know, I... I remember waking up one day and there were seven bottles of wine. And I asked my wife how many she drank. And she said, none. I say, you're saying that I drank that yesterday, yeah. And oh. I don't feel anything right now. I can literally go to train. I will probably outwork my students. Mm. That is not good. And that's when I stopped four years right away. But mm. then I got this really, after my last fight in 2006, so after seven years, I decided to fight again. And somehow that's where my knee started. And all the injuries that made me stop for in the first place, they all came back with a vengeance. So I fought my fight. I won the fight. Everything was okay. But I was completely... I had so many injuries and it started with two little pain pills, you know, and I have an amazing body. My doctor told me my liver knows how to break things really fresh. That's why I never had hangovers. So two pills become four, become eight, become 16. I'm literally 12 pills at the time, like insane amounts. Then you go to Oxycontin, which is pretty much heroin, right? Heroin. What they're selling. It's pretty the same thing. And uh, because there's less Tylenol in than another pill, because otherwise your liver is going to go down, you know, because you, you put so much hurt on it. So, and I had an, an Oxycontin addiction, but again, I had that and also realized really fast that I went wrong. Within a year I go, I, I, I remember I was telling myself that I wasn't addicted until my flight was delayed in like at the East coast somewhere, like four hours and I run out of pills and I was not a fun uh, part home. I realized I'm addicted. I'm shaking, you know, I get goosebumps, sweating, cold sweats. So then I kicked that again, you know, and, uh, and, and that was the last thing. That was in 2008, I believe. Then I stopped everything. And now I got everything under control. I, I have to say also four, four and a half years ago, I got back into the faith and the Catholic faith. And that really helped me as well to, you know, but I have really good theologians who, who help me with everything. And, and, um, you know, to make you see, you know, once you read that you're a slave to alcohol, you know, you're enslaved, right? And I go, no, 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 no. So once you start putting those things in perspective and you, uh, and you do the work, it becomes actually easy. You, you can never say easy because as soon as you think it's easy, that's where it comes back. <laughs> it's always like that. If you think you have a handle on it, 
you should never do that. But now I can literally drink, yesterday I could get, drink one glass of wine. Okay. And, you know, you know, I can, yeah, and it's easy, you know, and I, I could never have done that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Because if I feel a little buzz, then I, if one is good, two is better. Two is yeah. good, four is better. You see how it goes? And then, bup, 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 because we're all looking for that thrill the whole time because that's, we're pretty much addicted to it as a fighter. You are pretty much. That's why the rock climbers do the same thing. The scarce divers, the guys with the bat suits, it's all, but you see what happens is with the bat suits also at the beginning, you start going to the air, but then, you know, that's, that's fun for the first 10 times, 20 times. Nah, it doesn't do anything anymore. Let's go very close to an, to a yeah. mountain. You know, this is where the accidents start happening because every time you get sensitized to it, you, you get used to it and then you have to up the game. And that's how you have to watch out with those kind of sports because most of the time that's where it goes wrong. And it's the same with, you know, loving drinking or, 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 or doing drugs, whatever it is. Everything, if you, how do I say? As long as you control it and it cannot control you. That's what I always say to my students. You're good. You know, once you cannot go without, you, you're going to have to stop and stop immediately because it can only go downhill. Once you pass a certain amount of pills, there's no turning back anymore. You're going to have to stop. I remember the number nine I wrote with my wife's highlighter or whatever you call the thing uh, on the mirror, in the top mirror. I wrote nine because I was taking nine pills uh, uh, a day, like Vicodins or Norcos. And I said, I'm not going to go over nine. And two weeks later, you're 15, you know? And I go, oh, this is going to go wrong. So, you know, once you, you have to, you have to see it. What they say with addicts also, is like they have to fall really hard. Thankfully, I never did that. I just saw it coming. I go, you know what? It's only going worse and worse and worse. I got to stop this now. So, and then once you stop it, then you realize that there's a whole different world outside suddenly. And then now, now you know, now you start replacing things. Now I went to skydive and I start doing these things because that's, it's a kick. It's a thrill as well. And now I want to do the bad suit, you see. And so, but I'm going to have to do a lot of jumps. So right now I'm very busy, but I think, I believe I have to do over 50 jumps I think before I, I'm allowed to go into a, a bat suit. I mm-hmm. found out though, that's 15 miles away from here, there's a skydiving school now. So I, I, I can do it. I can go every day 10 times, you know? <laughs> Better take well, your time. I mean, it's just not to rush those things, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just white sound. So, how did you re- rediscover your faith? Have you been an atheist or, or have you just abandoned uh, faith? faith. When I was 12 years old, I was all Catholic. I was baptized. I did my confirmation. And then at 12 years old, my parents decided not to go to, to church anymore. So, um, now I had this crazy life. Um, um, in my old house, the house before this house, we had a ghost in there, a spirit that, My, uh, the whole family saw. My daughter can describe exactly what she looked like. She knew it was a woman. We found out later it was a woman who was uh, uh, who, who passed away. That a previous owner, and uh, she didn't like me. Um, she attacked me, and in the middle of the night, and very scary, uh, like pressing me in the bed, not able to eat, not not to breathe. And I, the only way for me to was get mentally very angry, and then I would explode in the middle of the night, scream, and then my wife, everybody would freak out, of course. It was the only way to get up, but I couldn't move a muscle, couldn't even breathe anymore. That happened a whole bunch of times. Saw her walking through the house, like literally seeing right. her walking through the house. I, I felt one day we came home and I felt there was somebody in the house. It was 9 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I tell my family to stay at the front door. I say, keep the door open, but I went almost close. If, if you hear me struggle with somebody, I want you to close it, call the cops. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. Don't worry. But um, there's somebody or something in the house that felt weird. Now, I had this kitchen 
that was divided. It was a, a dining room on one side of the of the wall, and here was an open kitchen. That went in the back there. There was a, there was there was the kitchen, the fridge, and all that stuff, the stove. And I thought that person was there. So what I did, there was two entrances. I could go to the open kitchen, walk to that back part, or I go to the dining area, and there was this big curtain, like this heavy, thick curtain hanging in front of a doorpost instead of a door that also went to the kitchen. So what I did, I acted like I went to this side, and then suddenly I was loud, but talking, hoping that the person would take the bait and would start walking there, I would make a U-turn, and then I would face the person. I started sprinting, and while I'm running through, the curtain flies up against the ceiling, so I just keep sprinting through, and my, the family saw it, and there was nobody in the house. Doors were closed, we just came home, people, everybody goes, yeah, boss, probably the door. I said, we just came home, everything was closed, <laughs> you know, I'm not leaving doors open, I'm Dutch, we close everything before we leave, trust me on that. <laughs> but I mean, it didn't move, it flew up against the ceiling, full power. And that was a moment that I thought, okay, there's just way more in this world that we can see, you know, and we can experience. So then a few days later, I challenged it. I would always challenge it. If it would happen in the middle of the night, I would say, okay, I want you to do it now again. I'm going to go to sleep. Do it again, because now I'm going to be ready for you. I want to see, because now you're waiting for me such a long time. It's like a sucker punch. I say, if you're tough, come right now, you know? And then I went under the, the chandelier, that place where it was always called, it was the dining room area. And I challenged it there for 45 minutes, I think. I said, come on, let's do this now. You know, all, I, I don't like this the coming behind and hitting me and then going away. If you're really tough, you should do this right now. Now, later when I started thinking about this whole thing, I realized that that woman, my kids, everybody was happy. There was no problem. She was singling me out. And that was the time that I was drinking heavy. Now, I was never a bad drunk. But I was always, there's music, there's dancing, you know, I'm always up and always happy, but always happy, always drunk is not being yeah. a good father, it's not going to be a husband, it's not going to be a, a good man, you know, so I, I stopped that at the time. Many years later, we were filming a movie and, and um, we have the speaker coming to the set, mm -hmm. uh, a theologian. And, um, and a friend of mine said, hey, boss, why don't you sit in on the, on the talk this time? Kevin James, he's a Catholic as well. He says, why don't you sit with him? And he started talking about me, about a leaf fell from the tree. Uh, and then the leaf was on the ground. That was the end destination of the leaf. And then he started backtracking the leaf. And the way he did that, you come to a conclusion, undeniable. I cannot do it like he does. He actually wrote a book about it, uh, Going Deeper, is that, from Leo Severino. It's a really good book. It's not a thick book. But you read that, after you read that, you know we are planted here. This is not an accident. I never believed this, this was an accident anyway. The one cell going to two cells, I never believed that because how you sustain life like that, one cell, it's, for me, that was impossible. I always thought, actually, I thought that we were put on this planet by us from the future. That's what I always thought. You know, so for me to make that, that switch to go, oh, us from the future, or there is a God who did this, was, it was a very simple step. You also have to remember, when I was 10 years old, Maester Jos, you remember the guy I, I didn't yeah, like? He's a bad guy. And I remember in his class, I was 10 years old, watch, looking outside the tree, uh, out the window. And it was a tree. And he's trying to get my attention. And I hear the class laughing and suddenly he's screaming. I go, because I'm in a zone. I'm looking at a tree. And this is a very vivid memory for me. And then he's screaming, Ruth, that. I go, what? He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at that tree. He goes, what about the tree? I go, how did the tree get here and he goes dude they planted that stupid i said no that's not what i'm saying how 
But the tree before that, when you go all the way back, where do trees come from? Where did it start? When was the first tree? When yeah. did it start? So when Leo started, the leaf fell from the tree, started backtracking the leaf to where it eventually all began. Mm-hmm. And then with the solid proof of the very existence of God, I was like, okay, you see, now that with me, what happened with the ghost, I knew already there was negativity going on. By the way, that challenging of the ghost, I did at 3 a.m. at night. I had no clue that Jesus passed away at 3 p.m. I wasn't in the faith. And at 3 a.m. would be the, the dark uh, forces are, are the most active at 3 a.m. This is the opposite of when, when Christ passed. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no clue, but yet I was there at 3 o'clock doing it. You know, so all these little things, when you start looking back, and that fits together. It's almost like they were planting seeds in my head. Mm-hmm. Until suddenly I heard the talk from Leo, and I go, oh, man, this is the wildest thing. You know, I can, I can talk a lot about that because there's so many things that happened along the way. But, you know, that, that's maybe for a different show because then people are going to go, oh, what's, what's going on? Most of the time when you start talking about the faith, that's why I don't. People are going to go, they, they zone out right away. It's right away, oh, the pedophile priest. And it's a, they blame it on people. You know, and I always go, oh, so, okay, so what you're saying is that if you're a math teacher who taught you A plus A, because let, let's face it, the New Testament is all truth and it's all love. Nobody can deny that. You can be a biggest atheist, but you cannot say that. You have to forgive everybody 70 times, 70 times, over and over. It's all about love and thing, right? That's 100% true. That's what Jesus said he was established. But truth is also math, right? A plus A to 16. Or what if your math teacher had a sexual relationship? What if one of the math teachers on the planet had a sexual relationship with a minor? Is A plus A still 16? And they look at me, I go, yeah, of course it's still 16. Well, see it like that. Jesus said, this is the church. This is how good. Yeah, and along the way, bad people come who try to destroy the church from within. It's what we're seeing right now. It's actually the Apostle Paul talked about that. It will happen like that. They will act like they're, you know, one of us apostles. They come into the church, and from the inside, they're going to try to throw it away. Once you hear these stories with these pedophile priests who came out now last time, the 300-something, with the upside-down crosses that they did, and they crucified a little kid, like not with nails, but hanging him on the cross. I mean... That is satanic, right? So that means he was 100% right. They started like that and they tried to ruin it from the inside. So once you can overcome that and you just realize these are bad people, this is not what Jesus said, you know, that problem is solved. Unfortunately, I was like that. I would say that the first time somebody came to me, oh, you're Catholic? So you're Catholic? Yeah, oh, pedophile priest. I would do the same thing (laughs) because I didn't learn about it. Well, once you learn about it and you wake up and you become, you're smart about it, you go, "Ah, it's just bad people. Look at the first uh, 12 apostles. We already had a bad one there, right? So, so do, you, you, do you believe in, uh, specifically in the Catholic Church and Jesus and in, in the scriptures as, as being verbatim? Or is it more of a, um, because the idea of that something has to be, had to be initiated at some point by someone, right? There's a higher power yeah. that has to be initiated. That's a very generic, let's say, idea that you can have. So oh, it's not specific yeah. to the Catholic Church, for example. So would you say you're more a Catholic guy or more a spiritual guy? No, I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic all the way, like 100%. I think it's the one only to a church. You know, they say that's the one that's established by Jesus Christ. And people can say, oh, the, that's the Protestant church too. No, it's not. Martin Luther established that church. Is it different? He took some books out, seven books out, and he's, there's some changes that he made. You know, so that's not established by Jesus' appearance. changed on the way over. You know, if you read the Christ connection, if you find out that the 2,000 years before Christ was born in the book of the Hindu, which is the oldest religion in the world, Mm -hmm. in the book of the Hindu. And 2,000 years before Christ was born, somebody would get born from a virgin. He would uh, get spit out by the people. Mm -hmm. He would be bound to a stick. 
His hand and feet would be pierced, but his, head would, his bones would not be broken. He would wear a crown of thorns. He would drink a sour drink. And then the last one was with seven identical punch uh, lines from the Passion, 2,000 years before this happened. It's, you can read it. It's in the book, right? Yes, right? And the last one was that they said, oh, no, this cannot be true. Because in order to sustain life and to, uh, to go there, you had to eat them and drink them. They thought they were talking about cannibalism, mm-hmm. you know? And then you go, 2,000 years later, Jesus got born from a virgin. You get this whole story that is predicted 2,000 years before that in the book of the Hindu. You can find it right there. And there's more religions also. There's the coming of Christ. The Christ Connection is a book by uh, Roy Forges. And um, it's really interesting when you read those things. And then once you really start diving into it, because you always try, in the beginning, you know, you want to learn more. You want to believe more. Because you still, if you can't see it, like, like I experienced it. I saw it. I saw things flying around. I know it's 100% there. But for other people, yeah, see is believing right mm-hmm. and i pray for a month and nothing happened you know he's not he doesn't exist yeah okay so you didn't do anything your whole life you did everything wrong since 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 all the bad things that you did and in a month you're entitled to suddenly need some help from god come on guys it's like being not training for 10 years and then i i trained for a month i want to fight a world title fight isn't really working like that you know you have to really dive into it. And, and I really found it, and I think it's really important. I, I mean, the things that you read and the, the prophetic messages they have. And yes, by the New Testament, I live. You know, that, that's what I want. I would love to have, you know, the understanding and to, you know, forgive and forget and do all that stuff and be more peace and calm. It's great. Yeah, the Old Testament, some, so there's some hard stuff in there. <laughs> People are going to go, whoa, that's a little hard. But that's not what Christians live by. You know, we all live by what Jesus established. <laughs> Um, you uh, talking about books. You mentioned um, you're big. As I saw some other interview with you, you're a big fan of um, The Alchemist by Paulo yeah. Coelho. Um, talk a little bit about that because I read that book many years ago. It was a very influential book for myself as well. I really liked the book. Um, can you talk a little bit, little bit about that? Uh, what you know, meant life and maybe maybe two two. No, it's impossible. But a five sentence summary of of what the story of the book is because it's really about finding your path in life, right? It's if you yeah, it's finding your personal legend. So so that you see, you can replace it with everything, your goal in life, whatever you want to do. And with him, it was a treasure, you know, in this book, this particular book. It's just a sheep herder, you know, who. Uh, who goes on this mission he, to look for his personal legends. And he meets all these people on the way, along the way, that change him, that put him back on the course. Every time when he strains away from the path, you know, he meets a person and then boop, he jumps back on again. And he realizes he calls them omens. Mm-hmm. Like things or people you meet, you meet those for a reason. I tell my students always and, and everybody, my daughters, you know, you, you meet people for a reason, you know, and if you meet a person, you think, oh, maybe I got to have to listen to the person. And, and this book is so smart because it's a normal story. Nobody told me that I was actually going to learn from it. So while I was reading it, I go like, man, that's a great thing what he did. And once you keep reading, you realize, oh, wow, it's really imprinting all the things that you need to have in order to be a good person or a successful person, you know, it's hidden in, in the story because you think it's just a guy, a sheep's herder. That's what he is. But once you start reading it, then you realize that your, your mind gets programmed a certain way. And it is so, so good for you. I read it a whole bunch of times now. Every friend of mine, I told everybody to read it. It's very good. I just read a book, The Icon Effect. And, uh, and it's pretty much the same. And it's about business, a business guy who was down and, you know, and they, and they have these rules, these 25 rules. And every time a rule pops up and I was, I, my buddy gave it to me and he said, boss, if you read this, you cannot stop it. You will read it one time. So I took the first page and started reading when I flew to New York. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I finished it when I was in New York. <laughs> I, I was like, holy Martin, this is the, one of the best books. It's also, you read it, it's a normal story, but you get these little rules. And if you live by those rules as a business person, mm-hmm. it will really help you. Another one, and it's Matthew McConaughey, actually, he uh, put me onto that, is uh, the greatest salesman in the world, no, which is no, a no, no, no. But it takes 10 months to read because... Every, there's 10 chapters and every chapter you have to wait three times a day mm-hmm. for a month straight. And then you can go to the next chapter. And what that is doing, it's also, it's programming your mind because at the beginning you're reading it, reading it, reading it. But after 12 days, 13 days, you realize you memorize your whole five minute, six minute little talk. You know, you can do it on top of your head. You do it in the morning, during the day, first thing in the morning, during the day, and be, just before you go to sleep. And you do that for 30 days, boom, it's locked in. And a lot of the things that he's talking about are you know but you don't live by them you realize that you know that and you should live by them but you don't do it anymore it's kind of watered down you know so then you pick that up again and that i really enjoyed that book as well oh okay so um yeah bus, uh, i mean we bus bus sorry bus i don't want to get it wrong <laughs> but, but is bus short for uh Okay. It's a bad accident. He's the only saint who got martyred twice, actually. They shot him. He, he, he told the king at the time, uh, the, the emperor, what he was doing wrong with the Christians. And then they the bottom on the stick, they start shooting him full of arrows. He survived that. Somebody mm-hmm. brought him back to life. Then he went straight back to the guy, did it again. This time they didn't let him go, though. They, they clubbed him to death. But he's the only saint. He was a, he was a saint. He's the saint of athletes also. So uh, okay. he was a Roman commander in the uh, Roman Empire. Okay, okay. So, so what's uh, what's next for you? What's where's your path leading you? What are your next project? My, my yeah, my my next project is uh, called the WBKFF, the World Bare Knuckle Fighting Federation. Uh, it's legal. It's big in in England right now. Okay. Uh, and it, it started here in America now too. In Wyoming is a state where it's legal, uh, legalized bare knuckle boxing. Oh wow! Okay. And November 9th, I uh, have the first show. I just became the president of that company. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been asking me for a lot. I, I do karate as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, it's called karate combat. Uh, I like to do, and I do mixed martial arts as commentating as well. And then they wanted me for a, to be a president of this new MMA organization. I said, no, because there's so many out there. But when they came with bare knuckle, I go, wow, that could be really cool. Uh, did my homework first because I need to make sure I knew already in my mind that it was safer than boxing. But I had to find it. I had to look it up. And so once I start Googling it, uh, people get up because now people are going to watch this and they go like, he's an idiot. It's more yeah. safer than boxing. Just Google it. It's safe. It's bare knuckle boxing safer than boxing. Yeah. And all the tests will say it is. People at home who don't understand martial arts, they think the glove is invented to protect the head of the opponent. It's not invented for that. It's to protect the hand because people were breaking their hands on the skull all the way back and then they couldn't defend the, their title. So they go, dude, this is not good. We got to come up with something so they don't break their hands anymore. That's how the, the boxing glove gets invented. Now, when the boxing glove got invented, now there's no reason to hold back anymore. You can hit as hard as you want and you're not going to break your hand anymore. In bare knuckle boxing, all these guys, those pros, they hit 50% of the power to the head and they go hard to the body. But they don't want to hit the head hard because if they hit the skull, they're going to break gonna... their hands. Yeah. So yes, you have lacerations, you have that stuff. But that's uh, superficial. You know, it's just on the top of it. Um, it doesn't uh, cause CTE, right? Yeah. So uh, 
entophilopathy, right? Philosophy, yeah. Traumatic, chronic traumatic trends, encephalopathy. That's it. It's a, it's a very hard word to pronounce. But a CTE is a big thing now in boxing, right? With the, and, and even with American football here also. Yeah, you have all the late stage brain damage, depression caused by that. So you have many suicides in, in pro athletes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now that, that was the first thing I did when I heard about bare knuckle boxing. I started Googling about it and they said, no, yeah, you have cuts and people go down with body shots. The last show they had, it was not this company, another company. There was one knockout from like 15 fights and one broken hand. Mm -hmm. And the rest maybe got stopped because of a cut, but nobody got knocked out anymore. So um, it's actually safer. And that was the reason that I said, okay, then I want to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. If it goes completely out of hand, which I don't think it is because it's working for such a long time and in England already, then nothing can go wrong. I don't want anybody to get hurt, of course. As long as I know that they can keep speaking to their family, Instead of start slurring the words, that would not be good for me. So, a little cut here and there for guys. For what I understand, the girls dig scars, right? That's what they're always saying. Girls real, real men. Right. But, but do you think there's a chance that this will ever get sanctions uh, nationwide? Uh, because I mean, it, it's 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 much more graphic in a way. It's it's not as bad from a from a um, injury perspective but it's much more graphic you, you will get the cuts you will get the lacerations and stuff like that so there will be bloods and people will say oh god this is just another freak show and we will never sanction this do you think there's a chance that this will ever be yeah especially now what goes on every the, the whole world is turning into a sissy right you can't do anything anymore you can't say anything anymore oh, yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. i mean it's insane so but I'm, i'm very easy like golf for instance is not my cup of tea Do I shout against it? No. Do I do I scream against it? No. If I zap a channel and it's golf, and I just click the next channel. For example, I'm not going to stay and look at it and start spinning fire, go online and start saying bad things about it. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's why I believe it probably won't be a regular TV kind of thing, but mm -hmm. this is a pay-per-view show. And I think people who buy the pay-per-view, you know, they're already kind of used to that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... Um, A cut for people, it's like I, I stitch myself up, you know, whatever I do or, or my students, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. But for regular people, that that's really weird. I had my eyes were completely closed and I just got my doctor. I said, give me a syringe with a white gouge. And I just stabbed it in there and I just sucked the blood out. And, you know, for me, that's a normal thing to do. And then one time I heard a fighter who was in that room at the same time. I heard him tell that story to somebody else like 15 years later. He says, this dude, man, he takes off his shades, he puts, takes a syringe in his stomach, he starts sucking the blood out, and I go, oh, he's talking about me, right? <laughs> But the way he was talking, I go like, oh, yeah, now that sounds a little weird, right? Because it's so normal for us, but it's not normal for other people. So when they see blood all over the face, and they wipe the blood, most of the time it's a little tiny cut somewhere. Yeah, and they blood because the heart rate is pumping. The head bleeds in incredibly fast and, and quite a lot, so quite intensely. So, you know, that's, and a bunch of people can step over. Then if you don't like blood, don't watch it. <laughs> I say don't watch it. <laughs> Easy solution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, I don't want to keep you longer. I know you're quite busy. And um, I mean, also maybe the one last thing, your um, oxygen trainer, that's something I want to, yeah. to I think that's a great product. And, and um, maybe you can just quickly talk about that before we close up. Well, here we go again with the asthma, right? I would have a, I, I, at the time when I was very sick as a kid, I was still doing track and field because my whole family does track and field. My brother is really good at it. Uh, but I started getting really good at it as well. And I wanted to become, believe it or not, the Dutch Bruce Jenner because he was the guy, he was the 1976 gold medalist uh, 
triathlon. No, 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 decathlon. And, um, and I wanted to do that as well. I was good javelin, discus, shot put, runnish, high jump. I had everything good. For my asthma, the 1,500 meters, of course, that was the hardest thing for me to do. And the 400 meters because that's my lungs. But for the, for the rest, I was going really well. Mm-hmm. Now, if I would have an asthma attack, uh, and then I would, after that attack, it's let's say eight days in bed, being <gasps> not able to eat, breathe, <clears throat> I would resume my track and field. And every single time when I would do that, I would run faster and I would break my running times. Wow, okay. And it freaked me out. Mm-hmm. And I go, why is that? Maybe it's the medication they gave me. Maybe it's the cortisone. You know, it has to be. So why do I every time? And then it goes slowly, but surely it goes away again. And I'm back to my old numbers. And... I, I had to tr- learn how to breathe, you know? So every month you go as a kid, you take an hour breathing classes from a doctor, from a specialist. And when I went to the office, I saw a drawing of a pair of lungs on the, on the wall in a frame. Mm-hmm. And I saw that the infection is not in your lungs, it's in the air pipes that go to the lungs. As a kid, you think it's in the lungs, lung infection. That's what you think, right? It's not. It's the air pipes that go towards the lungs. Mm-hmm. And you saw one air pipe next to each other and one that was completely closed with all slimy stuff in there. And I was literally, I was 14 years old. I go, that was the light bulb. I go, oh man, I've been working out my lungs for eight days in a row. I've been putting air into this little tiny hole. Mm -hmm. So then when the infection is gone and everything is open, my actually my, the way I- Your your respiratory system is stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I run better. Why don't I come up with something that controls the air intake? That was literally my idea. And over the years, I start telling everybody, you know, you're at a party and somebody says, oh, I have an invention. And they tell their invention. I say, oh, I have an invention. But every time when I would tell my invention, they would say, you got to make that thing, boss, because somebody's going to come up with that. That's a really good idea what you have. And I went on and on until I was in America. And, and suddenly... Uh, an, a, a fighter, Vendelay Silva, he was training his fighters apparently with a snorkel, breathing uh, in a snorkel, just a snorkel. And my phone went crazy. I got text messages from everybody, and I called it the routinizer at the time. We called it the O2 trainer now, but the routinizer, that was the name for it, just for fun. And he says, dude, the routinizer, you got to make it. Everybody start telling me. He says, somebody's going to come up with it because, look, he's already training through a tube, you know, and it, it, it might look like that. So I started making, made a prototype. I started training with the prototype. I was a severe asthma patient my, my entire life. Every fight I had in the dressing room, I always have to spray my lungs open. Oh, if yeah. I, everywhere I traveled in the world, I had to carry an inhaler. Because if I would sneeze three times very violently, I chew like hard, my lungs closed, have to take them up again, spray them open. Within three weeks, my asthma was cured. Gone. Three weeks. Right. So I'm telling my body in Holland who has asthma, I said, I'm going to send you one. Him, two weeks. Cured. He sells them now in Europe because he goes, dude, this is crazy. Cure me. One night right now, I have a hundred percent success rate. Everybody who per- uses it for asthma, they don't have asthma anymore. Can I medically claim it? No, because I don't have the money to do those tests yet. I do have medical journals, published medical journals that tell you what it does for you. So that I have because I got in contact with the, the trainer from Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a really bad article about uh, the competition that I have. I won't say the name because, but he, he, he wrote a bad article about that. My manager told me about that artic- article. And I said, hey, listen, do me a favor. Find the guy who wrote that article. I want to send him a note to a trainer. He said, are you sure you want to do that? Because what if it's bad? I said, it's not. They control the air in and out. Mine only controls the air in. It's the only way to go. I know this is the only way to go. Because then you can completely exhale before you inhale again. So you can use your whole inspiratory system to get stronger. And he calls the guy, finds the guy, picks up the phone. Hey, I'm representing Boss Ruta. And before he continues his sentence, the guy goes, oh, the O2 trainer. He says, we're already using that. 
Oh, yeah. This guy has a higher IQ than freaking Einstein. <laughs> this guy trains Usain Bolt, three other gold medalists. You know, this, this is a big fish now. And he's already using it. So now I teamed up with him. And he's got all those published medical journals where it's proven what it does. You know, so they're on my website now. And you, you can read those. Right now, it's just, you know, I'm trying to contain it still. Uh, we're going to have, I think, in about one month, I'm going to have 15,000 in stock. And that's because we build it up ourselves. It costs so much money for the patents and the worldwide patents and everything that I had to do. I mean, so much money I put in there. Uh, yes, other people want to jump on board now, but then they want 40% of the company. I said, listen, I did it to myself. I'm going to finish it myself. So now every time the investment's coming back, we get more and more and more. And until we have 15, 20,000 in stock, then I'm going to go on a show like Dr. Oz. I'm going to bring Chet Masias, that's the trainer from New Symbol, with me on the show. Then we have the public medical... Uh, the published medical journals, you know, where it's proven, because this is always fun, right? If you have somebody, oh, it's clinically tested. Yeah, so it sucks. Why? It's, it's been tested with bad results. <laughs> if it would have been a good result, you would have said that, but it isn't. So it's not a good thing. You see, I mean, it makes no sense. This is clinically proven, 100% proven. It's a published medical journal. That means it's 100% proven. So it's a big step. Uh, I'm just going to have to wait till I have many in stock because I, I don't want to be that guy that starts selling a lot and sell out and going to have to wait five weeks to the next shipment. People are going to be happy to kill the company. So I'm just doing a snow out together with my wife and, and that's it. We pretty much run the whole thing. Well, she, she does the most work. Trust me. Okay. And why did that you need to um, have a free, uh, the option to exhale freely? Why, why is it not better to, to, to restrict both in and out? Okay, so if you, if you push hard, it would also train your lungs. Like, have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Not, so that, that's that's what I don't get. Yeah, but but uh, no, you can, but not together. So the reason is this: um, first of all, it's a very simple concept. It's like a thing that has two uh, outsides. Mm -hmm. One side has a screen on it, a flap. If I breathe out, it goes open. If I breathe in, it closes. Mm -hmm. Which will force you to breathe into this side. It's a little thing. It's, it's not a big yeah, thing. I've seen it, yeah. Let's see. And, uh, yeah, but for the people at home. And so and there comes with a hole, a millimeter hole, two millimeter, three, four, five, six, all the way to 50. So you can very slowly, gradually go down in size hole and you get with resistance. Now, if you breathe in with resistance and you need air really fast, you want to breathe out. If you breathe out with resistance, you can't completely empty your lungs. Because mm. if you're getting tired, you need new air again. So what you start doing, if you control air in and out, you start breathing shallow because there's still air in the lungs the whole time. With mine, you can breathe in, takes out, and then you can completely exhale. You can't do that with resistance. Oh, I'm tired again. You got to breathe in again. But you still have like 40% of air in your lungs, and you breathe in again. That's not a good thing. If you can completely empty your lungs, you can yeah. use the whole inspiratory system to get yeah. back up. Especially now it's... Now the guy actually wants to be partner with me, the other one. <laughs> so, because they figured it out as well, that it's the only way to go. So, um, but now, yeah, that ship is still. There was something said in the beginning. And I said, I just wait because I know my article. They said, oh, it sucks, it sucks, it sucks. You got to control air in and out. And I knew I was right. And eight years later, I found out I was right. That was really sweet for me. That's great. Yeah. Hey, Bas, so thank you very much. It was really a very, very 
interesting conversation. I would love to go on for hours, but um, well, you had a few other things to do. Um, I want to close with uh, two questions. And um, the first question is, um, this series of interviews I'm doing is um, about extraordinary people. So people who do things that are, you know, that bring this world a step further, who have uh, special experiences, who uh, you know, change the world or shape the world in a certain way. Um, who would you say is such an extraordinary person to you that I might even talk to next? Well, I, normally I would say I can't get Bruce Lee, but of course he passed away. I did the next best thing, though. I interviewed his wife, of his wife, his uh, daughter, Shannon mm -hmm. Lee. That was an awesome thing. But people who changed the world. Um, Nick Newell. I would say Nick Newell is a fighter with a congenital amputee. Or he has a half an arm. I met him a long time ago on the movie set, Here Comes the Boom. Mm -hmm. That was in, uh, so a long time ago. Uh, he was one of the extras walking around there and he came to me with half an arm mm -hmm. and he uh, told me to remember his name because he was going to be a famous fighter mm -hmm. in mixed martial arts. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking at him. I said, you tell me that you're going to fight with that arm. Yeah. I said, dude, I wish you all the best. I got his uh, address. Uh -huh. I sent him all my workouts that I had developed like DVDs and workouts. I sent it to him because I thought, man, that would be great. Many years later, this guy became a champion. He became an MMA champion. He fought 14 fights, lost only two, one by decision. One, he got stopped, but that was a very tough fight. It was a title fight for a different company. But I mean, I think he, from his 12 wins, I think he had three decisions. The rest, he finished everybody. I mean, it's just an amazing guy, what you can do with half an arm. Like my arm, I couldn't hold it, my phone, and I couldn't hold anything anymore. But my neck surgery had the compressed nerves. And I was complaining, I couldn't do anything anymore. And then I thought about Nick. And I go, man, I'm such a sissy. He has, doesn't even have a hand, right? Now I can use my hand again. I should be happy enough. Yes, it's, it's 30% of the power that it had before, but I still have a whole arm. This guy has half an arm and he became a champion with it. That's the guy, you know, I go, that's an inspiring person. I like that uh, a lot. Great. So uh, I'll start to reach out to him. It's, but it's crazy what people can do with limitations that seem impossible. I've, I've told you I've, a few weeks back, I have, um, spoke to a woman named uh, Jessica Cox. She's a motivational speaker and she was born without arms. So she doesn't have any stubs, nothing. It's like, like just shoulders and nothing else. I saw it this morning. You sent it to me. And she's on the phone with her freaking, with, with the foot. Yeah. She, she, puts her contact lenses in. she puts her contact lenses in with her feet. And she's she played piano, right? I saw her feet on the piano, the toes. That's yeah. crazy. And she, she's a licensed pilot. I mean, that's crazy. And she did, um, she, you know, when she went, you know, we talked for a while. And um, when she went to the flight instructor, he said, oh, well, we, we can't have you have a separate test because, you know, the regulations are that everyone needs to have the same test. So she did the, the uh, flight license with the same test, with the same airplane, like, everyone else with arms. So he, she has to be able to do everything with her two feet that ab an able-bodied uh, people, a person would have to do. And then she passed it. She's a scuba diver. She's a parachuter. She's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. And, and then you talk about limitations. I mean, I, uh, I can't do this. I'm too tired. I didn't have my cup of co uh, coffee in the morning. I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I did that, that I did as a kid. They always asked me, how can you deal with it, with the eczema and everything? And I said, well, I noticed people out there that have a way worse than I who have that eczema that had really bad on my hands, they're completely covered with that. I know there are people out there who have the asthma attack that I have for only a week. They have it 365 days a year. There's always people who have it more, and they still, many of them, are able to pull off these amazing things. And what you just talked about, that's, 
I mean, I saw the pictures, you know, with the feet on the piano and driving the car. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, it's, it's so amazing what people can do. You see, that's, I love that. That's the same uh, with uh, Lizzie Velasquez. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, and it's such a bad title, but she's kind of embracing that. And then she's, you know, speaks up against bullying and you know, what a power, you know, as a, as a woman, you know, if you have that disease to, to come out on top and to, you know, to, to inspire the world. I, I love people like that. I have a cousin who has problems, you know, and he's gaining weight and he used to do heroin and drinking and all that stuff. And I go, dude, he lost 110 pounds in like four months time. Mm-hmm. And he says that he's a loser. And I go, yes, you are. You're big. You lost a lot of weight. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. I said, do you win a TV show here in America with that kind of weight, losing 110 pounds? It's insane. Crazy. You know, and, and you saying that you are a loser, that's so incredibly hard what you're doing right now when you're doing it, you know? So I hope he gets inspired a little bit more because sometimes he falls off the wagon and then he's back on. But uh, yeah, it's amazing what people can do. And I had that with Nick Newell too. And then, yeah, Lizzie Velasquez. I, I really like her message as well. Oh, very interesting. Bas, um, final words. So what do you want to do? What, what kind of message do you want to give to the viewers and to the listeners of this uh, show? What's your what's the message that's closest to your heart? It's doing unto others, right? That's what I always say. It's like, just treat people like you want to be treated. I know this is used a lot, this line. And I know that. Yet 90% of the people who say it are not living by it. Mm. That's the problem nowadays. Everything is so short and fast, you know, so many characters only. Everything is short attention span. It's the government. They they just try to get your attention away and give it to commercials and and all that stuff. It's very sad what's going on in the world. Everybody's breaking up and start dating through phones. I mean, there's dating services. Nobody can go out anymore to meet people. Are you insane? I mean, so treat people like you want to be treated. It's very simple. You know, if you do something to a person, I always think before I actually do something or before I'm going to tell my person, like, let's, let's say I go to a, a friend of mine and I'm, I'm about to give him constructive criticism. I always flip. I always put the shoe on the other foot and I always say, what would I feel if he would come to me? You know, now this is a thing I learned because as a fighter, you're, you have an ego, you need an ego. You need to, you need to make yourself the best guy on the planet. You know, little doubt can be really bad for you in a fight. So you have to have need, need to chip on your shoulder and hopefully you can shake that off after you're done fighting, you know? So you have to learn to live with that. If somebody, if I tell a fighter constructive criticism, they don't really like that. But the good ones, they ask, ask me, they say, please do. And thankfully I changed a lot like that for me as well. Long time already. I always listen to constructive criticism, open your ears, what they have to say, another pair of eyes, you know, it's always good to have. If they're right, start doing it. If they're wrong, thank them very much. But I stick to my own game. You can, you know, it can be very nice. It doesn't need to be stupid. No, just listen to somebody. So do to people as they would do unto you. That's literally what I'm saying and live by it. Not just say it, live by it. Wonderful. Buzz Rutten, I thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and I hope talking to you very soon. Thank you very much. Okie dokie. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. 
And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too. And it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website, you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content. So don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Jessica Cox. When Jessica was born, it came as a shock to everyone that she didn't have arms. But her incredible will to survive and thrive led her to achieve things many able-bodied only dream of. She is the first licensed pilot in the world who was born without arms, an avid scuba diver and taekwondo black belt. She is also a powerful motivational speaker who travels the world and inspires millions to never give up on their dreams, no matter how bad the odds seem. Rob and Jessica talk about how she changed the struggle of living with a disability into a blessing, how she inspires kids to overcome their own physical challenges, and much more. Join the conversation now. <laughs>